Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom again. Uh, and as you know, we're in a series now uh, on marriage and the family. Uh, today's part five. And today I want to speak on the parents' role, and especially the father's role, in raising godly children and preparing them for marriage and to eventually leave their own homes. Uh, now, uh, why am I emphasizing the father's role today uh, in, in raising their kids? Uh, because tragically, in our culture t- today, uh, our society here in the West doesn't think much of fathers. Uh, and in fact, the typical TV sitcom regularly mocks fathers uh, as incompetent, uh, and clueless and ineffectual. Uh, and fathers are also minimized uh, and relegated to the background because of the rising socialism and statism of our society, whereby the state replaces and takes over the role of the father. Now, what is statism? Here's in the definition I'll put on the, on the overhead here. Statism is the idea that the state... Uh, will now stand in that historic patriarchal, uh, patriocentric role. The state will take over now the role and responsibility uh, of the father. The state will become the hub from which all the spokes of family, education, government, culture, ethics, and values will now emanate. The state will be responsible and have authority to take care of the needs of the family. Not the father. And it's no longer the father's responsibility. Now it's the role of the state. That's statism. And as the state assumes more and more of this role, the fathers become less and less significant and important. So, for example, uh, in many of our poorer communities, where you have the rise of the welfare state, uh, the law now says that a woman can't get government housing or food stamps or or Medicaid or welfare as long as there's a man in the house. You can only get it if there's no man in the house. Uh, So so you see, the the offer of government assistance comes with it, this this power of control. So the state makes a devil's bargain with the mother. The state says, I'll provide for you without fail and I won't snore or drink or leave my dirty underwear around. Uh, uh, and I'll pay your rent. And I'll buy your food. As long as there's no man around. Or you can have a husband and give up all this free stuff that I'm offering you. And you can take all the difficulties and troubles that come with a man. That's the devil's bargain the state tries to make with us. And sadly, most women in poor communities say... I'll take the state. And this has destroyed the man's role, the husband's role, the father's role in the home. And it's devastated whole communities, and especially the black community. Uh, the, the welfare state is inherently racist and has destroyed the black community in America. Because over the course of generations, this state control has created endemic, multi-generational fatherlessness. Out-of-wedlock births in the U.S. are now greater than 40% of all births. 
And in the black community, it's over 70%. That means more than seven out of every 10 births in the black community is now out of wedlock birth. And so whole generations of these boys grow up without fathers. Our culture doesn't think much of fathers. But what does the Bible, and especially the Torah, have to say about a father's responsibility to his family? Actually, the Torah says a lot about a father's responsibility as the head of his house. Uh, Here I'm from the overhead. Here are some of the father's responsibilities according to the Torah. And it's on the overhead. Number one, the father is to personally model strict fidelity to God. Model this to his family. That's the father's job. That's his duty. And that, that was his, the father's duty in all, in all of ancient Israel. Modeling for his family what it meant to be committed to the Lord. And number two, uh, leading the family in national festivals. Uh, and nurturing the memory of Israel's salvation. During the biblical feasts and festivals of Israel, it was the father's responsibility to lead and represent his family in these national observances and celebrations of our people. Number three, the Torah says it's the father's responsibility to instruct his family in the traditions of the Exodus and the scriptures. It was the father's responsibility to head up the family celebration of Passover and to instruct the next generation in the story of the Exodus and other events of Israel's history. Number four, his father's responsibility, according to the Torah, to manage the land in accordance with the scriptures and the law of the Torah. This was the father's responsibility. It included, for example, the laws of gleaning uh, and observing the corners of the field for the poor. It included the tithe of the first fruits uh, given to the priests in the temple. The father was responsible for the tithe. Number four, Providing the family's needs for food, shelter, clothing, and rest. Rest? Yes, rest. What do you think all the Shabbat laws were all about? The father, as the head of his house, was responsible to make sure that not only his family, but also with animals and his servants, rested on the Shabbat and had a biblical pace of life. Number six, defending the household against outside threats. Number seven, serving as an elder at the gate and and representing the household in the official assembly of citizens of their town or village. You know, by the way, we used to see a vintage of this, uh, even uh, this concept, even here in America, uh, about 50 or more years ago. So so think of America back then, if you're old enough, you know, uh, 50 years, old enough to remember. You grew up in a small town or suburb or even a close-knit inner-city neighborhood. Uh, And now a young boy... 10 or 11 years old, he gets into, into some mischief. Uh, he vandalizes the house and he breaks a window. What, what would happen 50 years ago? You would take him to his father. And it was the father's responsibility to mete out justice and to discipline his son and to pay for the window. The father has to pay for the repairs. And he'd take it out of the boy's allowance, we'd make the boy work it off. Why does the father have to pay for what the son did? Because the father is responsible for his family. That's a biblical concept that used to prevail even here in America. Number eight, maintaining the family member's well-being uh, and harmony within the family. Number nine, implementing the decisions made by the clan or, tri- the clan or tribal level. 
You know, in God's economy, the beginning level of all government is the family. The father had responsibility for interpreting the government decisions at the clan or the tribal level and communicating them to his family and implementing and enforcing them. And in the New Covenant, uh, we see that providing for your family is the primary responsibility uh, and the personal responsibility of the father. Look at 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone doesn't provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. Note the strong language here. The scriptures are saying that if as as a father and and, and a husband, you don't provide for your family, you've denied the faith. You're worse than an infidel. It's as if you're not even a believer. And the context here, by the way, if you read the context here in 1 Timothy, it's not only about taking care of your immediate family, which is assumed as a given, but also taking care of your mother when she's old and a widow. That's the actual context here. Number 10, to lead and disciple his wife. You know, Ephesians 5 says the husband is to, uh, husbands have to teach their wives the word, to wash them in the word. Number 11, to disciple and discipline and instruct his children. As we see in Ephesians 6, this was the primary responsibility of the father to instruct his children. Ephesians 6, 4 says, it says fathers, uh, don't provoke your children to anger. But bring them up, what, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, and then number 12, to lead their wives and children in prayer. First Peter 3, 7 talks about the husbands properly treating your wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. Uh, and the context here is that you husbands are to be regularly praying for your families. That's the context. Because you're the priest of your household. Uh, and prayers are offered up on behalf of you and your wife and your kids and the whole family. And the scriptures are warning us here there's going to be hindrance to the prayers of your whole household if you as the father fail to live with your wife in an understanding manner. The father is to be the prayer leader of his home. Men of this time, do you do this? I encourage you to lead here. Look how far our culture has fallen. Today you're considered a good father if you simply put food on the table and pay the bills. That's the extent of your role. Uh, and you're a really good father if you, if you help uh, get your kids into the best schools and universities. So men think of being a good father uh, if they're simply a good provider. Uh, but then the wife comes to him and says, Sweetheart, you're disengaged. It's as if, it's as if you're not even here anymore. The children are growing up before your eyes, and they barely know you. Your son's going to be 18 next year. He's going to, be gone. He's going to go off in no time. And you don't, even, you don't even know him. The typical father today says, Oh, I go to work every day. I provide all this for you. What more do you want from me? And indeed, that's what our culture says to the man. It tells him his only responsibility is to bring home a paycheck uh, and to materially provide for his family and give them a higher standard of living than he had when he was growing up, that his father provided for him. But then the wife is stuck raising the kids by herself and she sees the reality of, of how an absentee father is slowly destroying the children. Because the way God created the family is that the father 
is far more critical in the spiritual health of his wife and children than merely providing a paycheck uh, and, and nice things for his family. So our, so our modern secular culture has sold us a bill of goods. And it completely obliterates the biblical picture of a father and his responsibility to his family as the priest and prophet of his home. And this new modern replacement model of a husband and father uh, that, that, that the state has now taken over eliminates the God-given role and responsibility of the father and the husband and completely ends up emasculating the man. It takes away the essence of his manhood rightly understood. And because we've drunk this Kool-Aid, we don't even realize it. We've become so used to living without the priestly and prophetic essence of our manhood that we define ourselves now by this soulless, hollow leftovers of our secular society. Because for many of us, that's all we've got. And so we don't realize the priestly and prophetic role as the spiritual head of our homes uh, to pray for our family, to teach them the word, to lead them in family worship, to instruct and train and discipline them, uh, to which we as, as husbands and fathers, this is what we have been called to by God. And rightly understood, it is a glorious and overwhelming and intimidating and beautiful and God-given calling. Now I want to start looking at the father's responsibility to his children. And then I want to start with the father's responsibility to his daughters. And then we'll get to the sons. I'm going to first list them all off. Uh, and then I'm going to go over them one by one uh, in much more detail. And we'll put this on the overhead. So number one, for the daughters. A father has a responsibility to protect his daughter from male predators. So that she would marry as a virgin and bring, thus bring honor to the Lord and purity to her husband. Number two. We'll, we'll, we'll go back over all these. Number two. A father has responsibility for his daughter's marriage by approving a suitable husband and making proper arrangements. Now, again, I did not say arranging the marriage or choosing the husband. That's not what I said. <laughs> but approving a suitable husband. Number three. Ensuring a measure of security for his daughter by providing for her a dowry. This is a Torah principle. Number four, protecting his daughter from making rash vows. Number five, providing security for his daughter in case the marriage fails or the, or the husband dies. Number six, instructing his daughter in the scriptures. Now I'm going to go back over these six responsibilities of the father of his daughter according to the Torah. So number one, a father has a responsibility to protect his daughter from male predators so they marry as virgins, thus bringing honor to the Lord and purity to their husbands. So let's look at the scriptures here. Look at the Torah. Deuteronomy 22, verse 20. Deuteronomy 22, 20. Here's, by the way, before we read, before we read the verse, here's, here's the context, okay? The context is this. A woman gets married. Her husband accuses her of not being a virgin. Uh, he comes to her father with this accusation. The father is then required to produce uh, the sheets from the marriage bed as evidence of her virginity. If the father does so, the elders of the city then chastise the husband, and they find him a hundred shekels uh, to be given to the girl's father, and he is forbidden to ever divorce her. Now, 
with that, here's the next part, Deuteronomy 22, verse 20. But if the charge is true that the girl was not found a virgin, then you shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death, because she's committed a shameful act in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus shall you purge the evil from among you. Now, we don't stone people anymore <laughs> for a number of reasons. But what's the principle behind this case law? A number of things are probably over here. The principles behind this case law. Number one, God is serious about purity. Number two, the buck stops at the dad's door. Number three, although the dad is ultimately responsible, the daughter is, all, is held accountable for her actions. Now, these principles still apply today. Whether or not a specific statute of ancient Israel theocracy uh, before the coming of the Messiah is still in force, per se. So we can debate uh, the specifics of these death penalty laws. But either way, the transcending principles still apply. That God is serious about purity. And the seriousness about purity goes all the way forward to the picture of us we as the believers, as the holy congregation, as the bride of Messiah. Uh, we were clothed in white linen. Why? Because it symbolizes the purity of his beloved that he redeems by his blood. So note this. And here's a further application, messianic application. Yeshua now is the one who stoned at the door of his father's house in a very real, literal sense. He takes on our sin and he suffers the Torah punishment. And he voluntarily does this on our behalf, on behalf of his bride. He is the pure one, and yet as the innocent lamb, he experiences the stoning that we deserve. He, although pure, experiences the stoning of the impure one. And not just at his father's house, but ultimately at his father's very hand. So that you and I might be pure brides in spite of the fact that we're not. Do you see how everything in the Torah, even these stoning laws, is are an amazing picture of the Messiah? Exodus 22, next verse, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he must pay the bride price for her and make her his wife. So if a man seduces a woman that is not to be taken lightly, he's not obligated to marry her. If he pays a dowry for her, and she becomes his bride, uh, whether he wants it or not. Next verse, Exodus 22, verse 17. But if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, uh, uh, the, the guy shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. If her father, notice the wording here, if her father refuses to give her to him. Who has the last word here? The father. The father decides. So again, we see this picture of the father and his responsibility to protect and preserve the purity of his daughter. Number two, the father must make provision for his daughter's marriage by, by approving a suitable husband and making proper arrangements. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughter to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they're turning their sons away from following me and seek to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he'll quickly destroy you. 
God is addressing Israel here before they before they're just about to enter into the promised land. And the Lord says not to intermarry with the pagan tribes in the, living in the promised land, the Canaanites. Uh, uh, but interestingly, when it says notice to whom these instructions are given, to the Father. Because it's the Father's responsibility to oversee the marriage of his sons and daughters and to govern the process. But we have fallen so far from these biblical principles today. That today, we consider today a young man to be extremely godly if when he, he meets your daughter at college uh, and, and scoops, her off, off her, off, scoops her up off her feet, uh, that before he actually asks her to, to marry him, knowing, of course, that he already has her heart, then he comes, comes to ask you, the father, not for permission to pursue your daughter, but for permission, but for permission to marry her. And in our culture, in our day and age, he's considered an amazingly godly and respectful young man to have done that. Uh, to ask the father's permission to marry his daughter. But what's the reality here? The reality is this. He stole your daughter's heart before you even knew his name. Now, having secured her heart and her loyalty, he comes to you after the fact and basically holds your daughter hostage and says to you, in essence, she's mine already. The only reason I'm asking you is because she's already agreed. So I'm giving you this ultimatum. You can either agree uh, that I can have her, that you have what I've already stolen, or you can say no and lose your daughter. What's it going to be, Pops? That is not a good, respectful, godly man. That's a poacher. And here in Texas, we shoot poachers. <laughs> Not said. <laughs> Number three. Fathers have to provide for the security of their daughters through a type of dowry. Now, now remember Laban in the Bible? Laban was one of the worst characters in the whole scriptures. And yet, he gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah, gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel, as part of their dowry. Uh, so, he had one of the biggest scoundrels in the, in the scriptures. He nonetheless provides for the financial security of his daughters. Now, many of you may be saying today, uh, well, I can't afford a dowry. Uh, okay, did you know this? The average wedding in America today costs about $25,000. That's the cost of the average wedding today. Uh, renting the hall, uh, the flowers, the cake, the photography, uh, the catering, the drinks, uh, the wedding dress. That's by half of it probably. <laughs> uh, the band, etc. $25,000. Now, what if instead, just think about this, what if instead you put a much more modest and expensive wedding and then, and then gave some of the money you just saved to the bride and groom to establish themselves, uh, to get a car, to put a down payment on a home, to get started in their new life? I'm just trying to help you here be creative and think outside the box uh, for how we can take these Torah principles from ancient Israel and apply them today to our life in 21st century America. Because the Word of God is active and alive. Amen. Its principles are timeless. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us how we can best apply them to our life. So this is a, this is a suggestion. 
how we can walk out these commands concerning a Torah's responsibility of the father to provide a dowry for his daughter. Uh, and by the way, what's often the motive for spending so much money on a wedding? Much of it has to do with fulfilling the daughter's expectations based on all these fairy tales we fed to them when they were small, right? Cinderella, Stephen Beauty, the Princess and the Frog, Little Mermaid, Aladdin. That's a picture uh, in their head of what a wedding is supposed to look like. But I would submit to you that an extravagant, uh, bust-the-bank, blowout wedding is not necessary or to honor Messiah in our weddings and in our marriages. And then instead, providing them a leg up to start off with in life would be much more helpful in the long run for them. Just a thought. Number four, we must protect our daughters from rash vows. Look at Numbers 30, verse 3. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord, now note the whom she's vowed to the Lord himself, and binds herself to a pledge while in her father's house, in her youth, and her father hears the vow and her pledge by which she found herself. And her father says nothing to her, that all her vows shall stand. And every pledge by which she found herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her pledges by which she found herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father has forbidden her. Now, why did she make this vow and this pledge? Who, who did she make it to? She made it to the Lord. And yet the Father can negate it. And the Lord will forgive her because the Lord honors the Father's authority over his unwed daughter living in his home. So a young girl makes a vow to the Lord. But if the dad says no, the Torah says the Lord will not hold her to her vow. The, the Lord will release her from the pledge. This is a matter of black-letter Torah law. Now, I know this is going to be foreign to us today. You know, in our, in our, because why? Because today we live in a, a radically feminist, hyper-egalitarian, extreme independent spirit, anti-patriarchy culture. But the idea here is that when a daughter is young and unmarried and living at home, the father has a responsibility to protect her from rash vows. Why? Because the father is the spiritual head of the home. And therefore has a biblical responsibility to protect and provide for and to nurture and instruct and discipline and disciple and train up his children. So for example, a young girl in her enthusiasm for the Lord, uh, in her youthful zeal, uh, she says something she really doesn't understand, uh, doesn't realize the implications of the commitment she's making, and she innocently you know, blurts out some kind of a foolish vow. And the father hears about it, and immediately he says, Honey, I know you love the Lord, and I'm so blessed and thrilled by your commitment to him. But that's not a promise you need to be making. Without realizing that you're presuming upon God. And so for your benefit, as your father, as the priest of our home, I need to annul that vow and release you from it. Now here's a real-life example. Uh, your family is at this big evangelistic rally, let's say it's in a stadium or an auditorium. At the end, uh, at the urging of the traveling evangelist, uh, your young daughter, let's say she's 14 years old, she walks up front and says, I hereby commit my life 
to being a full-time, long-term, permanent, lifelong missionary to China. But you as a father, you don't really have a positive witness about this in your spirit. That's where this passage in Numbers 3 uh, comes in. That's where a father comes to his daughter and says, I know you love Yeshua. I know you want to serve Yeshua. But it's not a vow that you should be making. You, you tell the Lord, yes, you'll serve him. Do whatever he calls you to do. But here's what I don't want for you, sweetheart. I don't want for you to have an opportunity to serve the Lord. And now you're married someday, you know, 10 years later from now, to a godly man who's a calling on his life. He's fluent in Hebrew. God calls him to Israel. You're by his side as his wife. Uh, the two of you are ministering to thousands of people in Israel who've never heard the true gospel before. The Lord's pouring out his spirit. He's opening hearts. But all you can think of is that you're not keeping this promise you made when you were 14, that you should be a long-term missionary to China. And this woman of God should not have this guilt trip hanging over her life that Satan now uses to attack her because of a rash vow she made as a youth. That's what Numbers 30 is all about. A father protecting his daughter. And the Lord makes explicit provision for this in the Torah. And this still applies today. Or how about this? Uh, your 12-year-old daughter makes a vow never ever to get married. And the father says, sweetheart, we don't know what the Lord may have planned for you later in life. You don't need to be making a, a vow at age 12. I'm not convinced the Lord has, caused, has called you uh, to permanent singleness. So as your father, I annul that vow. The Lord won't hold you to it. That's an example of a rash vow being annulled, properly according to Torah law. Number five. A father must provide for his daughter in case she's abandoned. Look at Leviticus 22.12. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the offerings or the gifts. So, so as a child, she would have eaten uh, of these offerings and gifts because uh, she eats what the priest eats. She's a member uh, of the family, and this is what the priests live off of, the tithes and offerings, Right? But if the priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child, meaning no adult child to provide for her, that's the context, and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. Now what's this talking about? This is a young woman. This young woman is responsible to her father. And because her father is a priest, if he eats of the offering, she eats of the offering. Uh, because he's responsible to care for her. Then she marries a non-priest, she marries a lay person, not of the priestly line, and then the, father, the husband now is responsible to care for her. So she can no longer eat of the offerings because she's no longer a member of her father's household. However, let's say this lay person dies, and she doesn't have an adult son to care for her, so she again becomes the responsibility of her father. And because she's now the responsibility of her father again, she may eat of the offering. What's the principle? If somehow his daughter is abandoned, the father does not just wipe his hands and say, I'm no longer responsible. You're over 18. You left home to get married. Get out of here. Go get a, go get a job. No. The Torah responsibility of the father is to say, please come back home. I will provide for you. Now again, I know it's foreign to our modern, cult, secular, independent, individualistic, self-centered culture. But the Torah culture, the ancient Israeli culture, the biblical culture, 
is for the father to be responsible to provide for his children and especially for his daughters. And all you single men out there who one day will be fathers, you need to hear this as well. I'm going to challenge you all to read through the Torah and write down all the responsibilities incumbent upon fathers and then pray to the Lord to show you how each one applies today. Men of a time, rightly understood and applied, these are weighty matters. This is our manhood that's been taken from us. True biblical manhood. Let me over here and put this. True biblical manhood, which is, not, which is neither effeminate passivity nor domineering machismo, but rather is taking up our messianic mantle of, of being the priest and prophet of our home. Today, all that seems to measure us as a man is what kind of job we have, how much money we make, how shallow, how one-dimensional, how truly disworldly and, and, and incomplete. I'm trying to instead give us today some of the weightier matters of the Torah. All right, those are the father's responsibility to his daughters. Let's move on to a father's responsibility to his sons. We're going to look at eight Torah responsibilities of a father to his sons. And again, I'm going to list all eight, and then I'm going to go back, and we're going to talk about each one of them briefly. Show the overhead. Number one, we are to model biblical manhood in our home. These are, the, these are our father's responsibilities to his sons. To model biblical manhood in our homes. Number two, to prepare your sons for marriage and the headship of their future homes, their households. Number three, to walk alongside your sons and teach them a trade in ancient Israel. Number four, to tell your sons the story of the Exodus, the view towards multi-generational remembrance. Number five, to correct your sons and restrain their iniquity. Number six, to teach your sons wisdom from God's word. By the way, the whole book of Proverbs is about a father teaching his son. I encourage you daily with your children to study the book of Proverbs. Number seven, to oversee the process of your son's choosing a wife. And we're going to see a beautiful picture in Genesis 24 of, of Abraham uh, 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 helping to select a wife for his son Isaac. Gets up. Number eight, to leave your sons an inheritance. Let's look at each one of these. Number one, modeling biblical manhood in the home. Look at Proverbs 23, 26. Give me your heart, my son. Let your eyes observe my ways. This is a picture of Father's responsibility to model godliness to his son. The Father says, give me your heart, my son. Trust me. Submit to me. Follow me as I follow Messiah. That's the picture. Number two, tell them the story of God's salvation. Look at Deuteronomy 6.20. When your son asks you, time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and laws the Lord God has commanded you? And you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Do you see what this is saying? It's saying you are to rehearse it. You rehearse and retell the story of the Exodus and more generally, all the stories of God's great salvation and deliverance. Your, your, your sons, are gonna, uh, they're going to ask you questions. And you need to be ready to give answers. We see this over and over again in the scriptures. By the way, that's the, the whole picture of Psalm 78. One generation telling the next. Look at Psalm 78, verse 5. For the Lord 
uh, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generations to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should uh, put their confidence in God and not forget His works, but keep His commandments. Mm. Note that it's the father's role as the patriarch of his household to tell his family, here's who we are. Here's our history. Here's where we come from. Here's what our calling is. You know, I remember growing up, my family doing this on a small level. You know, a whole extended family would get together all the time, especially on the holidays. All the aunts and uncles and cousins and, and grandparents and great aunts and great uncles. And they tell stories from their past. Uh, about life in the old country where we came from, from Germany and Russia and Ukraine, uh, growing up. Uh, and we young kids, we would sit and we would listen and we would ask questions and we'd participate. And we'd learn our family history by sitting on the floor and the older generation would be telling their stories from the past. You didn't have each kid alone in their own room uh, or on their computer or iPhone or iPad. But the whole family would gather together and tell stories and recount the past, remind us of our Jewish heritage, and to spend time together as one great big extended family. That's gone today in most of America. What a loss. And how much greater the experience can be for we who are believers. And we can tell our children the story of our testimony, uh, the story of our redemption, and all the way the Lord has worked in our life. And all the answers to prayer that we've seen. And we could pass on this godly, Messiah-centered heritage to our children and our children's children. That's the Father's role and responsibility. To remember the, the salvation history of himself and his family and to pass it on to succeeding generations. Fathers, please do this for your children and your grandchildren. Number three, fathers, you have a responsibility to correct and restrain your son's iniquity. Deuteronomy 21, 19, 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who won't obey, won't obey his father and mother, and when they discipline him, he won't listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city uh, at the gate of his hometown, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and won't obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then the man of the city shall stone him to death. And you shall remove the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear of it and fear. By the way, this is speaking of a grown son, not some, some little kid. Look how seriously Israel took in disciplining and correcting and reproving and training their children. That's the principle here. I'm not talking about stoning today, but the principle behind disciplining your children, taking how seriously ancient Israel took this, and how seriously we need to take it. Look at 1 Samuel 3, because the Lord holds us responsible as fathers. Look at 1 Samuel 3, uh, 13. For I, the Lord, told him, told Samuel, I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which, I'm sorry, Eli, uh, for the iniquity which he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house 
shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. God held Eli responsible for not disciplining and correcting and restraining his sons. We as fathers must not shy from correcting and reproving and rebuking and disciplining our children. Because the Lord will hold you responsible. Number four. Fathers must teach their sons wisdom from God's word. Proverbs 2, number 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you'll understand your your mind, the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's a picture of the father teaching and instructing his son. And especially teaching him from the word of God. The idea is that a godly man's son, when he grows up, will remember his father's teachings. And his memories are of God's word and the principles found therein. They were applied again and again and again in his life. And he remembers them. You know, to this very day, I remember some of the key teachings and lessons and, and even disciplines uh, from my father. Uh, they are indelibly stamped on my soul to this very day. How much more if he had been a believer? Fathers, do not underestimate your influence, for good or for bad, that your instruction and your training will have on your children. They will never forget. Number five, help and oversee your son's selection of a godly wife. Genesis 24, 1 to 5. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in years. The Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please, place your hand under my thigh and swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you won't take a, take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live, but you go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife from my son Isaac. What a beautiful picture. Abraham is old. And instead of telling Isaac, oh, just get married already. You're 40 years old, Isaac, get back that time. Get married. I don't care who you, who, who you marry. Just get me some grandkids. <laughs> no, he doesn't settle this for any wife for his son. He insists on a godly wife from a godly line, not from the pagan Canaanites. Why? Because who... Uh, uh, who you marry, uh, I'm sorry, in some sense, when you marry, you marry the whole family. So for potential, you want a potential mate who comes from a godly line, a godly home. You marry the whole family, not just the spouse. Number six, fathers leave an inheritance for their sons. Deuteronomy 21.15. If a man has two wives... One love more and one love less, and both bear him sons. If the firstborn belongs to the one who's loved less, then it shall be on the day he wills what he has to his sons. He shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the one loved less, by giving him the firstborn rights of a double portion. For he's the beginning of his strength, and to him belong the rights of the firstborn, the Lord. 
We see here the importance the Torah places on fathers leaving an inheritance for their sons. Even so much so to the point of requiring the father to honor the son of the one loved less. He's the firstborn son under Torah law. Number seven, to walk alongside your sons and teach them a trade. In ancient Israel, the fathers would train and apprentice their sons to carry on the family trade or business or farm. Now today, this may not be practical, I understand that, but we can follow again, follow the general principles behind this Torah law of providing for the education, either in college or a trade school or a technical school or an apprenticeship program for our sons and to guide them in a career. And when we're not able to do that, other men in the congregation uh, can step up and help. Like, for example, Jeremy Skeeta here uh, has done for so many people with, with computer training. Uh, number eight, finally, uh, as fathers who would prepare our sons for marriage and future fatherhood by training them to be the priest and prophet and provider and protector of their future home and family, which we discussed at great length in part one of the service. Where your sons are trained to be the spiritual head and covering of their future home. And to pray for their wife. And to teach their children the word of God. And their regular family devotionals. And times of worship. You fathers here today, you need to be doing this yourselves right now. In order to train your children to do so. And you need to be the role model for them to emulate. There's nothing more important than each father uh, and husband here to return to these ancient paths, these biblical roles and responsibilities that we've so much lost today. And they have daily, if possible, times of prayer and worship and praise uh, uh, and Bible study and Bible memory and instruction of your wife and children. And to be a godly role model that your sons and your daughters will look to in choosing a mate and in establishing a home and raising up their own children door by door, generation to generation in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Thank God the music team to come up. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Father. Father, we thank you today for your word. Your word to parents and children. Especially your word on the role and responsibility of fathers in having Messiah-honoring marriages and raising godly families. Passing on your heritage and your ways to our, to our sons and daughters, to the next generation. Lord, help us to restore proper, God-honoring, biblical roles of, of the Father in, in our secular, self-centered society uh, that's lost its way. Help us to rediscover the ancient paths of your Torah, upon which the culture of your people Israel was founded. Help us as fathers to be Yeshua-honoring and Yeshua-following role models for our marriages, for our families, what it means to live for you, Lord. How to instruct and train our sons and daughters to prepare them for their future homes and marriages and families. Lord, if we can just catch this vision and commit to it, it will change everything in our homes and households. Uh, help us, Lord, to cling to you, Yeshua. For you and you alone. Uh, anoint and fill and empower us to live according to these truths. You, Yeshua, are our only hope as fathers and husbands and mothers and wives and youth and children. And so, Lord Yeshua, we fall upon your mercy and your grace. 
We ask you to build these foundations in our life of strong, Messiah-honored families. Lord, cause our children to hunger and thirst and yearn for these things. And never be satisfied with the pale imitations and the counterfeits offered by the secular world. But in all things, Lord, cause their hearts and their minds to seek after you, after your face. We pray this all in your name, Bishop Yeshua. Amen. Amen.